And now we turn to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Let us listen to this story as if for the first time. When they had come near Jerusalem and had entered Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. We just heard the gospel writer's account of this day. Here is another. It was Palm Sunday, a blazingly hot day. Into the middle of town rode a white stallion kicking up a cloud of dust as it passed. The people stopped in awe of such a magnificent creature, but they were even more awestruck by the man who was riding it. It was Jesus of Nazareth. Bad guys were on the loose, there was a job to do, and as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he quickly sized up the situation and formed a plan. He would capture the ringleaders of the troublemakers, Diablo, Jesus leapt from his horse and grabbed the man. A scuffle ensued with dust flying in every direction. Jesus tied Diablo and put him on that beautiful white horse and rode triumphantly to the jail. A crowd gathered to see what the commotion was, and as they streamed to his side, Jesus mounted his horse and pulled on the reins. The stallion reared on his hind legs, whinnied loudly, pawed the air with his strong front legs. And Jesus, holding the reins with one hand, lifted his big white hat and waved it in the air to the crowd. And as Jesus rode off into the sunset, you could almost hear the William Tell Overture playing in the background. By now you might recognize that this narrative is that of the Lone Ranger, not Jesus of Nazareth from the Gospel of Matthew riding into Jerusalem. We are well-versed in the tales of heroes. Pop culture often presents us with the enduring image of a lone person standing against the odds, drawing a crowd of dumbstruck spectators who fawn over the hero's magnificence. Almost always, the hero is camera-ready with a dashing smile or perhaps a brooding look that can see oh so distantly into the future. We see this in stories from Superman to Batman, from John Wayne to Jason Bourne. And indeed, in fiction and movies in recent years, women have been allowed to actually save the day as well. 
with people like Katniss and Triss, Hermione Granger, filling the ranks with their weapons and skill and intelligent and oh-so-effortlessly-good-looking hair. (laughs) It isn't just pop culture that gives us hero epics. Politicians as well want us to believe that they are the Lone Ranger, defying all odds, standing against all foes, single-handedly riding into battle. And books and magazines all play into this motif. You don't have to look very far to find some author who promises that they can save your time, the world, our families, our waistlines in just three easy steps if you turn to page 36. These stories are often filled with righteous heroes, obvious villains, extensive training, super cool gadgets, pure motives, and explosive endings. We like our heroes. We love, adore, worship our heroes. For a while, at least. Because when we look at this Palm Sunday narrative in Matthew's Gospel, we see that Matthew has staged the scene a little differently. Here we don't have state-of-the-art gadgets and intensive training that pushes the body to perfection. Here we have a scene of Jesus of Nazareth riding into Jerusalem. It'd be interesting together now in this time for us to look more closely at the pieces of this familiar scene. First, there's a donkey and a colt. Jesus gives very specific instructions to two disciples to go up ahead and get these creatures. It is confusing to think how Jesus might ride both these creatures, why he needs to have one and then pull the other one along. But Jesus knows his scriptures, as do the people of Jerusalem. He knows that Zechariah, the prophet, declares that a king will come humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. These are the words that are echoed in the gospel lesson we just read. Indeed, a donkey is a creature of gentleness, not war, like a stallion. One commentator even believes that Jesus might have been riding a nursing donkey with a foal at her side, the very epitome of vulnerability and nurturing care. This is a bold statement for someone to make when they are riding into a crowd. Second, this scene is filled with palm branches and cloaks as we wave our own palms. Both are signs of a royal greeting. The Psalm Vernon read was Psalm 118, and it describes how the gates will be open and the festal procession with branches will commence, all to the glory of God. So these scriptures were known by many of the people at the time, and indeed there is even in recent history a moment of such an entry, About 200 years before this scene in Matthew, Judas Maccabeus was greeted as a liberator when he arrived in Jerusalem after conquering the pagan armies that had oppressed Israel. His arrival signaled the start of a royal dynasty that lasted for over 100 years. So this memory of this deliverance is part of the people's lore. They welcomed his arrival then by spreading out cloaks and branches. Maccabeus saved the people. The crowds cheered wildly. The third part of this setting, this scene, is what the crowds shout to Jesus. Hosanna. The Greek translation is save us. This is the language one uses for a king, a person who will rescue his people from their oppressors. Save us, they shout to their deliverer. 
And indeed, you might recognize these words from the Christmas story where the angels themselves, the heavenly beings, sing Hosanna in the highest, signaling that God alone provides deliverance even to those creatures of heaven. So the people shout these words against the backdrop of Jerusalem at Passover. This was a busy time of year where some scholars estimate 100,000 people would have been riding in to Passover. The scene is a city that is teeming with life. The military, as you might imagine, is on high alert. The Roman authorities are wanting to look very powerful. The religious authorities are eager to prove that they have their own power apart from Rome. The crowds are jostling against each other. Religious expectations and tensions are high. And into this cauldron rides Jesus on a donkey, fulfilling a prophecy of a king with a whole crowd watching. No wonder Matthew declares this whole city is shaken. So now we have donkeys, cloaks, shouts for salvation, palm branches, and lots of people, and Jesus in the center. The pieces are in place. The scene is set. Except it's worth mentioning just one more thing. Unlike most of the epic stories we read, we aren't just reading this story. We are participants in this scene. The scriptures open to us a story of which we are still a part. We are caught up in the unfolding script that is about to happen. And this story is not comprised of accidents. It is no accident that Jesus arrives with this bold, kingly statement into this busy city on this important time of year. Jesus of Nazareth has set foot into this city with the stalwart intention to declare that God's kingdom is coming. The people are to be saved. 2,000 years later, we, the participants in this story, are to be saved. Jesus arrives, signaling the beginning of a new kingdom, and all the people cheer. They are ready to be saved, and they think they know what that means. As one writer notes, suddenly everyone wants Jesus to ride into this city and become the sort of king they want him to be. I wonder if people had other plans, though. I wonder how often the disciples asked Jesus to change his mind about going into Jerusalem during Passover. How often they tried to convince him to take a different tactic to remain a local hero only, staying in the smaller villages, keeping away from the eye of the military, the temple priests, and the governors. And yes, perhaps if he'd stayed in a local village, only a small group would have heard his teaching and preaching, but at least he would have been safe. Or perhaps someone tried to convince Jesus to sneak into Jerusalem under cover of darkness, to take time, establish a secret network of spies and followers. Then he could build a following and perhaps pull a few covert acts of sabotage, like zealots had done before. And yes, true, if he did this, only a select chosen few would pass through all the secrecy and get to know him, but at least he would be protected. Staying safe, being protected, surely these must have been strong temptations. But Jesus heads to Jerusalem because what the disciples don't always remember is that Jesus has a plan 
to save us, to include us in this plan, to save all of us, not just a select group of Jews, not just a limited number of secret followers, but all and each of us. And no matter what changes around him, this plan will not change. Christ will love us and save us and deliver us from sin into the grace of God's kingdom. No matter what we say, no matter what we do, Christ's purpose will not change. Christ's desire to be with us will not change. But we will. We shout Hosanna and wave branches now, but we will change our mind about this guy. We'll rethink how much we want his brand of heroics. After all, this is a full and hurting world. We each do carry a lot of burdens, a lot of questions. We hear a lot of demands. And all around us are people and groups and needs that don't ask for subtlety or patience, but instead demand our action or even our, just our reaction now. So we might each find that we'd turn around and start demanding the same thing. Give me action now, evidence now. Resolve the situation, solve it, fix it now, please. So today we cheer. And then as the week progresses and the armies of angels don't come and the miracles don't happen and the going gets tough, Maybe we'll decide that Jesus isn't moving quite fast enough for us. Maybe we'll decide to look elsewhere for our salvation. We might turn to those political figures and shout, save us now, whatever it takes. We might turn to technology or television or some other thing to distract us and declare, deliver me from dissatisfaction. Or we might start to avoid anything that stirs up our emotions or makes us rethink and ask questions or knocks us off our status quo. We might avoid anything and prefer instead to declare, free me from feeling bad. We cry Hosanna to God's Son now, but then the scene will change and we will shout, Hosanna, save us to someone, anything other than this Jesus guy. This is why we need this holy week. This is why we don't just worship on Sunday this week. We go into Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday remembering again that we are fickle. The scene will change, and we will get distracted, busy, angry, despairing, our hosannas will change. We won't say the same things on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday that we say today. And sometimes we'd rather skip this part of the story and go right to joyful Easter Sunday. But this week stands in between, and each day has something to show us. These upcoming days show us that no matter where we choose to look for deliverance, Jesus will not let anything get in the way of revealing how much we are loved. We will be saved. 
we will be delivered. Jesus will ride into Jerusalem, into the crowds, into the public square, knowing what awaits. And when the morning parade becomes a busy temple yard filled with money changers, and then that becomes a small upper room with disciples, and then it becomes a dark garden called Gethsemane, and then a royal court, and finally a hill called Calvary, Jesus the Christ will still be there, loving us, revealing God's love to us. We won't understand it at the time, and we won't even fully realize what is happening. But thanks be to God, God doesn't wait for us to understand before acting in the world. Christ doesn't wait for us to get around to liking him again before offering us salvation. The Holy Spirit is always moving, and soon the scene will change, and the crowds we will start to shout other things. Yet, that time isn't yet. That is not now. As we read Matthew, as we worship today, the scene of our hosannas is here and now. We are still alongside Jesus, cheering him along. We are still shouting our prayers to him. We still believe that we are his allies We still think that we will follow him anywhere, and we still are in awe of his gentle greatness. Let us pray together. Lord, we go forward into this day and into the days to come, knowing that things will change, the scene will change, our own feelings about you will change. But you, O Lord, are constant, constantly loving us, constantly seeking us, constantly revealing how much you care for us in this world. May we seek you. Amen.